Well, good morning, Living Hope. Good to see you. Good to be gathered, worship, singing, worship around the Word, and uh, always pray that God has prepared our hearts for the hearing of God's Word this morning, which includes me. Otherwise, we're just kind of wasting our time this morning. And I am confident God is going to show up and speak into our lives this morning and, uh, and, and the spirit of truth to guide us where he wants to guide us. And so let's see what he does with our passage here this morning. There were some men um, in a pickup truck and went into a lumber yard and one of the men walked into the office and says, we need some four by twos. And the service man behind the counter replies, you mean two by fours, don't you? man says, I don't know, I'll go check. And he goes out to the truck, and then he returns in a minute and says, yeah, yeah, I, I, I meant two by fours. All right, the serviceman says, uh, how long do you need them? The man pauses for a moment and says, I don't really know, I better go check. And so he goes back out to the truck, talks to the man out in the truck, and in a few minutes he returns. And again, the man behind the counter asks him, so how long do you need them? And the man answers, we're going to need them for a long time. We're going to build a house. <laughs> Now, wouldn't you love to see the house they built? Whoever said ignorance is bliss didn't follow those two guys around. And while it may be true that if we don't know about something, we may not then worry about it, it can also lead to serious consequences. At times, we may wish we could live in a bubble of ignorance and unawareness. It may bring this kind of sense of peace and security, but folks, it's a false sense of peace and security. And many people today go about their day without any thought of what's next, what is to come, what's on the other side of this life. Listen, Christ is coming back. And of course, all kinds of questions revolve around this matter of Christ's second coming. When it comes to end times, many Christians seem either to be on the extreme of obsessed with end times teaching or the extreme of ignorance and total disinterest. And many go about their lives, even in Christian camps, living in fear. Many operate on misinformation. And this goes as far back as the days of the early church. There were some the church in Thessalonica that were misinformed. They had become alarmed and they were disheartened and troubled. And, and Paul's divinely inspired teaching on the subject here was to correct some misunderstandings and address some of their fears and their concerns. And that brings us to what we're going to be looking at this morning in the passage that Melissa just read for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as I always do, I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles to follow along in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18, that passage that was just read as we continue in our series on vital signs from this letter from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. Now, as I mentioned last week, it is likely that what we have in chapters 4 and 5 of this letter to the Thessalonians is a response to some questions that the church in Thessalonica had for Paul to answer. They might have written these questions down, gave it to Timothy. He brought it back to Paul and said, they got some questions here. 
And he answered a question they had around practical purity uh, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in the first eight verses of of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then Paul likely answered a question they had around brotherly love as we looked at last week in verses 9 through 12. Well, it seems as though they had a question about the return of the Lord and about what happens to those who have died prior to Christ's return. Now, I mentioned early on in our series, like the first or second week, that every chapter in Thessalonians ends on a reference to the coming of Christ. This is true of chapter 4 as well, yet with greater detail about the timing of the resurrection and how it relates to the future end time events. And so we're going to be looking, and I'm going to be picking it up in verse 13 here, 1 Thessalonians 4, and really what we have here this morning is what Chuck Swindoll calls the ABCs of the Christian hope, the ABCs of our hope. And Paul's response here provides us with the basics of our end times expectations. These words were not meant, they weren't given so that we could could put these details in the correct order on our end times charts. That's not why we have these verses. What we have here in its context, it's meant to strengthen our hope as believers. All right, I'm going to give you four handles this morning, four handles um, really make up um, uh, with four statements that make up my outline for this morning. Uh, For those of you that that really matters to, the four statements that I want to make this morning. The first statement is, Christians grieve too. Christians grieve too. Now, as we come to verse 13, we see the heart of a pastor Follow along with me, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, Paul's concern is their ignorance on this matter of what happens to those who die before the coming of the Lord. In such matters as this, ignorance is not bliss. This is one of the areas where there was a gap in their understanding. It was an issue that needed some clarification. And what seems to be going on here is the believers in the church in Thessalonica, they really hadn't been given all the pieces uh, to put the puzzle of the end times together. And this young church in Thessalonica, they knew of the return of Christ. They, They kind of understood that on some level. But when some loved ones had passed away, they became misinformed. They they figured that when when Christ would return to take his children home with him, the, the ones who have died, they would miss out on that. How tragic. How sad. So his words are not designed to satisfy their speculative curiosity of end times or us, but to Meet them at their point of grief. And Paul speaks into their profound grief that they were experiencing. And notice he doesn't say stop grieving. He doesn't say stop grieving. Some, Some believers have, even today, have taken these words to mean they should not grieve when a loved one dies, especially a believer. And, and, and there, was, there was a guy in, in Portland, his mom passed away, and he said, no, I'm not supposed to grieve over her because that's what Scripture tells us. No, it doesn't. 
No, it doesn't. Some Christians have the mistaken notion that it's unspiritual to grieve at the loss of a loved one. Church, Christians grieve too. And Lou Holtz is second season as head football coach of the Notre Dame, the fighting Irish experienced a humiliating loss against Texas A&M at the Cotton Bowl, which would be the last game of their season, and it didn't end well. Well, Holtz, the, the head coach, he walked into the locker room. He was shaken. He was depressed. And what made matters even worse is that as he looked around the locker room, he noticed that most of his players didn't seem very distraught. The only exception was a second-string backup defensive tackle named Chris Zorich, who was sitting in front of his locker, sobbing. Holtz decided right then that next year's team would be composed of players who love football as much as Zorich. And the next season, this young man, Chris Zorich, went from second string to starter to team captain and helped the Fighting Irish win a national championship. Chris Zorich won the spot on the starting team because of his tears. There are some things worth crying over. It may not be a game lost, but certainly someone you loved and cared for is worth sadness in the heart. And there's a, there's a trend that's happened really over the last 15 years that many of our funeral services today, it's all about celebration, celebration. I understand that, I do. But I think it's at the neglect of the issue of grief. The BBC reported on the trend of happy funerals, noting that Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life had become the UK's most popular song played at memorial services, replacing Verdi's uh, Requiem. And, 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 and the suggestion there is that after these celebratory memorial services, we, we kind of supposed to just move on. Comforted by the memories, knowing that the person we've lost is no longer in pain. But, but this positive focus can afflict and baffle people deep in grief. As Daily Mail uh, columnist Belle Mooney wrote, she said, even though modern cheerful funerals can be hugely touching and beautiful, and they can, she goes on to say, a part of me wonders whether they show how petrified people are of death and of the long agony of bereavement. Listen, Scripture is not saying here, don't grieve. These words do not condemn appropriate grieving. We aren't called, church, to this emotionless stoicism. Jesus' example, right? He's, he, he's the one who sustains every life. He was called what? The man of sorrows. He was not immune to the ravages of death. In one incident in John chapter 11, Jesus learns that his friend Lazarus had died, right? And, 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 and he goes to the, his grieving friends and he does what anyone would do. He weeps. And teachers and pastors and Bible scholars have done all kinds of things with that weeping. Oh, it's because of this and this. Sure, there's some of that in there. But human emotion, he wept. He wept. Christians grieve too. However you may express that. And, and, and we, we do express our grief differently. Don't judge. But it's not a hopeless grief. Notice the term... Um, used here in verse 13 for those who have died, fallen asleep. Fallen asleep. 
it's a, this euphemism for death. It's not speaking at all to what some have kind of called the intermediate state known as soul sleep. That's not what it's saying at all. It's speaking of death as sleeping. It's implying that there's a future awakening. Winston Churchill planned his own funeral. It's not a bad idea, by the way. Winston Churchill planned his own funeral, and it included many of the great hymns of the church. It used the eloquent uh, Anglican uh, liturgy. At his direction, a bugler positioned high in the dome of the St. Paul's Cathedral played taps, the universal signal that day is done. I don't know about you, that one gets me every time. But then came the most dramatic turn. As Churchill had instructed... As soon as Taps was finished, another bugler placed on the other side of the great dome played reveille. It's time to get up, it's time to get up, it's time to get up in the morning. Now, I don't know where Churchill stood with the Lord, but by following Taps with reveille, it seemed to be testifying that death is not the final note in history. Now, I wouldn't suggest that you do that in your funeral service as Churchill's requested. But it is that truth that's at our side. Death is not the end. And Paul wants to assure his readers of that. Christians grieve too. Second statement this morning, just believing does not make it so. Just believing does not make it so. Because Paul in essence is saying here, everything will be okay. On what basis will everything be okay? Oh, by just having happy thoughts? Just by believing that will make everything okay? No, no, the basis for our believing must be in something true. What is the foundation for our hope? Look with me at verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Listen, our hope isn't this wishful thinking. It isn't even hope in hope. Our hope is grounded in history. Our belief is founded on the fact that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again. And, and, and it's not enough just to give mental assent to this reality, but to embrace, to understand, to receive that Jesus' death was his sacrifice in our place, a once and for all final payment for all our sins. It's to, it's to stake our life on this fact that Jesus' death satisfied God's holiness and God's justice. That all who have put their faith, their trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ never have to fear separation from God again in this life or in the next. And the fact that Jesus conquered death by physically and literally walking out of the tomb alive, we know too the death of a believer is temporary asleep as there's life beyond the grave. Listen, for the logical conclusion, for the logical conclusion of our belief in Jesus who died and rose again is that just as God the Father did not abandon Jesus to the grave, he won't abandon us to the grave. We have a future hope of a resurrection, whether alive or dead, when Jesus returns. Now, this is not just Paul's opinion on the matter. He reinforces his point by saying in verse 15 now, according to the Lord's own word, 
We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. You see, Paul wants to cement in their minds that these words are not some human origin or of human, inter, uh, human invention. He can say with certainty that what he's telling them is according to the Lord's own words. Now, we don't know that did he receive this direct message from the Lord and that's what he's referring to? Or is he referring to some teaching of Jesus that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, Paul is expanding on? We don't really know. But what he's saying is, this is a word from the Lord. It's not some speculations. Now, folks, this is in contrast to the many teachers down through the ages to our present day who have come up with all kinds of crazy and sloppy interpretations of unclear passages that have unsettled Christians and caused scoffers to laugh at Christians. For example, and I could give you many, teachings such as 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. That was written, published, sent out. Then when that year came and went, the same author released 89 reasons Jesus would come in 1989. Stop, please stop. Is it 90 now? Or uh, of the parade of seven vans in New York City back in 2011 that had written on them, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. And then on the back of the vans were these words, the Bible guarantees it. How did that work out? I mean, I could go on. The point is, and let me, let me quote John Kelvin, we should not investigate, we should not investigate what the Lord has left hidden in secret, that we should not neglect what he has brought into the open, so that we may not be convicted or guilty of excessive curiosity. What's in the open? Those who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep who have died. And so whether you're alive or you're dead at the coming of Christ, ultimately irrelevant. Those who are living have no advantage over the dead. Now again, remember, Paul is bringing these words to troubled hearts to assure them that those loved ones who have died, who know the Lord, will be included in the glorious resurrection, that transformation when we'll all be caught up with the Lord, which we refer to as the rapture. Now, by the way, by the way, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Now, neither is the word trinity, and we believe that. Okay? The doctrine of the rapture seems to be present, though the word itself does not. But it's that phrase caught up that we're going to see down in verse 17 of where we get our teaching on the rapture. And what it means, this caught up, this rapture word, it means to seize or to snatch or to, or to take away. That's what it literally means. And immediately you go, well, pastor, when will this rapture, this catching up with Christ, take place? When? What are the signs leading up to this event? Pastor, will this be before the seven-year tribulation or in the middle of the seven-year tribulation or after the great tribulation? And a lot of trees have been killed over the centuries on the order of end-time events, right? Much has been written, continues to be written. And so, you have those who are 
pre-trib. It's going to happen before the tribulation, the rapture. Then there's a mid-trib. It's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. Then, there's, then there are those post-trib. It's going to happen after the tribulation. Then there are those who are pan-trib. <laughs> you know what pan-trib is? You know what pan-trib is? It's all going to pan out in the end, so why worry about it? <laughs> and all of you going, that's the one I'm holding to. And we shouldn't worry about it. But it doesn't mean we're to bury our heads in the sand in ignorance either. There are actually some pretty good reasons why we should give some attention to it without going to the extreme. Because this is our hope. And yet so often, that hope gets buried beneath some complicated timetable. Let's come back to the ABCs of our hope. All right, third statement. That's what we're going to do. Some basic end times expectations. Some basic end times expectations. General Douglas MacArthur was a man who kept his promises. And during World War II, he was forced to flee the Philippines due to the Axis powers advancing. Deeply disappointed, he issued a statement to the press in which he promised his men and the people of the Philippines, I shall return. The promise really would become his mantra during the next two and a half years, and he'd repeat it often in public appearances. I shall return. Then October 20th, 1944, a few hours after his troops landed, MacArthur waded ashore under the Philippine uh, island of Leyte. That day, he made a radio broadcast in which he declared, people of the Philippines, I have returned. I have returned. Jesus left us behind over 2,000 years ago, and he said, I shall return. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. There's that thought of the rapture. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the, in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Here is our ABCs of our hope. What are some basic end times expectations? What do we know? First, Christ will descend from heaven. Christ will descend from heaven. We know that. Now, this is the primary feature of all that can, can often be lost, though, can it, in the sights and sounds and imaginations? But in Acts chapter 1, you can jot it down. I think it's verse 11. You can look at it later. When Jesus ascended before the very eyes of his disciples, two men, likely angels, said to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Here's the same way right here. Christ himself will descend from heaven. This we know. What else do we know? Secondly, there'll be a lot of noise. There'll be a lot of noise. Now, I was taught that every born-again believer alive at the time of the rapture will quietly and secretly disappear from this earth. Left Behind series certainly gave us that impression. Okay, well, it's true. Planes will become pilotless. Cars will be driverless. Missing persons bureaus will be swamped with calls from frantic relatives. All these believers from all these companies, all these workplaces, gone. Only law firms will remain intact. <laughs> all right. See, I said it first service, and I didn't learn from it, and I said it again. 
I apologize to all you lawyers out there. Now, okay, stay with me. There is truth. There is truth. And that believers will suddenly disappear. Okay? But a secret rapture? I don't know. Seems pretty dramatic to me. I mean, you're going to have to work this out. You may not fully agree with me on this. I'm just fascinated by the amount of noise surrounding the rising of the dead from the grave and the calling of the believers to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. There's a loud command, a shout from the Lord. Doesn't sound too quiet. It's a shout that will be obeyed. Do you wonder what that shout will be? What, what command might he give? We don't know. But that was the question that caught uh, Greg Fisher off guard. He was teaching at the West African Bible College many years ago. And this passage that we're reading here had just been read. And a student said, hey, I'd like to know what that shout will be. What will be that command? And Reverend Fisher was going to pass on the question because we're not told what the command will be. The Bible doesn't say. But he hesitated. For in his mind, he remembered conversations he had had with African believers who had suffered beyond description. He remembered the bloodshed and, and brutality of that particular area and all the injustices that were happening. He thought about the beggars that he passed on his way to work every day. And again, the student asked, sir, what would the shout be? What would the command be? Enough, he said. I think what the shout will be, one word, enough. Enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough time. Perhaps that is what he will shout. We don't know. But it will be that day when it is enough. Enough injustice, enough heartache, enough waking up in the morning wondering how you got that new body ache. Enough of all the pain. And our passage mentions that along with that loud command, there'll be a voice of the archangel and a trumpet. In all fairness, some scholars see the second two statements simply a further description of the shout. In other words, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call describe how the shout will occur rather than being three separate elements. Maybe. I happen to think that there are three distinct features to this appearance. The shout, the voice of the archangel, which likely is Michael, and then the trumpet call of God. Now we see trumpet and we can't help think of the musical instrument. That wasn't its primary use in those days. It was more of an instrument used for military exercises or festivals or, or funeral processions. By use of the shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call, God gives his command. I think it's going to be a lot of noise. He will come. He'll take his children home with a loud command. This we know. All right, what else do we know? Thirdly, the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. God's living power Life-giving power will reach in the depths of death, transform the bodies of those who have passed away. The emphasis seems to be on that place of preeminence. Uh, believers who have died will have a place of privilege. They will be the first ones to receive their resurrected bodies. Then those who are living 
will be changed in a moment. Paul tells us elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, you can check that out. And so you have here then the trumpet sound and all this noise. The dead will be raised in glorious, perfect bodies fit for heaven. And then those who are alive without tasting physical death will be instantly transformed into glorious, perfect bodies. All will meet the Lord in the air. That is our hope. This we know. We know. There's one more thing we know. End of verse 17. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Now, this is Paul's number one driving concern in this detailed description. It's the conclusion. We will be with the Lord forever. Basic elements right here in this passage of our end times expectations. ABCs of our hope. But pastor, what about... I don't know. What about? Well, I have my view on it. What about? How's this all going to be worked out? I don't know. I have more questions than I have answers around the coming of the Lord. This we know. We will be with the Lord forever. This we know. All right, I need to give you a final statement. Keep your eyes on the skies and your feet on the ground. Keep your eyes to the skies and your feet on the ground. Okay, what are we to do with all this? All right? Verse 18 leads with the the word therefore, provides us with our application. In other words, because of what we just saw in verses 13 through 17, therefore, That this is what we're to do with all this end times talk. Therefore, okay, verse 18, follow along. Therefore, annoy each other with these words. Nah, doesn't say that. Therefore, argue with each other about these words. Nope. Alarm each other with these words. No, he says encourage comfort each other with these words. That's the application. Church, how have we missed this? The aim of everything said here is not to satisfy our curiosity, but rather encouragement for the people of God. It's to provide hope for the hurting and hope for the weary and hope for those in sorrow. The sole reason for this passage of Scripture in context is to comfort those in the church in the face of loss, yet we have turned these words and others like it into speculations of timing and building of entire doctrines and writing bestsellers on the end times. There you go, I'm showing you my hand. And notice that it isn't simply on Paul to do the comforting and encouraging. It's on the church. You see it? Encourage each other with these words. Remind each other of our hope. Are we doing that? Help each other look to the skies and to keep our feet on the ground. Because the journey in this life, it can be so hard. The challenges can feel overwhelming. We wonder at times, is it worth it? Can we continue? Why should we continue? Why keep running? Long after the sun had set on the Boston Marathon, the official clock turned off. 
And the crowds had all but gone home. And then the 39-year-old Venezuelan, Mikhail Melamed, crossed the finish line around 4 a.m., 20 hours after the race began. What made Mikhail's race significant is that he suffers from a disease similar to muscular dystrophy, which meant he didn't so much run the race as walk it. But his motivation came from wanting to honor Boston Children's Hospital where he was treated as a child. And so he was determined to finish, and finish he did. As he reflected on his accomplishment, Mikkel stated, he said this, in any marathon, you have to know why you're doing it. Because in the last mile, the marathon will ask you why. Why do you do what you do? Why run the race? Jesus is coming. (laughs) That's our solid hope. We're doing it for Jesus. But as we look and wait for his coming, keep your feet on the ground. Don't miss the journey for the destination. We find it difficult, don't we, to maintain a commitment to both this world and the next, to this life and the next? Philip Yancey, he tells of a friend who uses the analogy of a busload of tourists en route to the Grand Canyon. And on the long journey to Grand Canyon across the wheat fields of Kansas and through the glorious mountains of Colorado, the travelers inexplicably keep the shades of their windows down, not seeing anything. They're intent on the ultimate destination. We're just going to get to the Grand Canyon. And they never even bother to look outside. And as a result, they spend their time arguing over such matters as who has the best seat, who's taking too much time in the restroom, and on and on it goes. And I'm thinking the church can resemble such a bus. We should remember that the Bible has far more to say about how to live during the journey than about, about the ultimate destination. And it has a lot to say about that. But it's about our journey, folks. If we lose sight of that, we're just going to spend time in, in, in who's got the best seat, who's doing this, who's doing that. See, some people of faith tend to be either or. But the world doesn't need either or people. Rather, we need both and Christians. People devoted to this life as to the next, to this city as to the heavenly city. Yes, you are to be heavenly minded and earthly good. Church, keep your eyes to the skies and your feet on the ground. We have work to do. We do. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word this morning. And I pray in my explanations and other things, Lord, that what doesn't get lost is what's written right here. And we take that to heart. It's clear. In your word, you tell us the best is yet to come. And we're to sing of that. And we're to look forward to that. And we're to get excited about that. And Lord, at the same time, help us live in this life with our feet on the ground, serving you, doing what we do for you, because we do know you're coming back. Apply these words to our lives in a very personal way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.